welcome back to another episode of Sex Ed Before Ben. I'm your host, Rebecca Neva, and it is 2020. It's COVID-19 time, and it's an unusual time. I hope that I can bring you some knowledge, some reprieve from this time, and I hope that wherever you are, you're doing okay. I'm uh, in Ottawa, Canada. And uh, just wishing my listeners all across um, the world the best. I was very fortunate to interview my next guest. Her name is Jessica Maxwell. She's currently an assistant professor at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. And she has studied at the University of Toronto. She has published profusely. You need to check out her CV. It's quite impressive at jessmaxwell.com. She researches things that are very relevant to our daily lives. In short, she is very good at uh, tackling issues and things that regular people deal with. So buckle up and enjoy. All right. So uh, Jessica Maxwell, welcome to Sex Ed Before Ben. Thanks so much for having me on. It's great to chat with you today. Yes, this is a, what is it, a transcontinental uh, podcast recording today. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I'm in Ottawa, Ontario, and you are in New Zealand. Yeah, in Auckland, New Zealand. So I'm actually in the future. It's a day ahead. So. <laughs> okay, that's great. You're like a living, breathing crystal ball. Exactly. I like to always tell people that I can predict the future. So <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. So... Uh, Jessica, you are you are really. I I'm so excited to ask you so many different questions. I I think the best place to start with a story is at the beginning. Sure. Yes. <laughs> I want to know, like, what led you to this area of study? Was there a moment or moments that brought you here? Gotcha. Yeah. I feel like. Um, I mean, we're gonna probably talk about fate later on, and how I I actually say don't believe in fate and destiny, but I do think in this case it was a little bit of destiny that I ended up um, researching sexuality and romantic relationships. Um, so I actually um, in undergrad I went to Queen's University and I was. Um, in the program to be um, an elementary school teacher. Um, and as part of that, you had to take psychology. Um, and what I quickly became aware of in first and second year is that I really loved psych, I really loved social psychology. Um, and then I think one of the pivotal points was in third year university, I got to take a human sexuality class. And I just thought it was the most amazing thing ever that you can like study these topics in a scientific way. Um, and I, I had a great professor who was really open. Um, and so I knew that was sort of one of my, my passions. And then in my last year of university, I took a seminar on the psychology of romantic relationships. Um, and I also loved that too, because I think I've naturally always, you know, been someone who loves um, watching rom-coms, um, like uh, interpreting people's relationships and things like that. Um, so I think the combination of sort of taking those two classes really cemented for me that I love psychology and I love those two areas. Um, and then it wasn't until I actually was further along in grad school that I sort of started to combine the areas of sexuality and romantic relationships. Um, at first, I was mainly just researching um, attachment styles and romantic relationships, but I started to then pursue a little bit more of the, the sexual angle that's um, sort of more where my passion lies, I guess. Yeah. Holy smokes. You must be like one of the most popular people at any party. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I sometimes I struggle with whether I want to tell people what I study or not. Because the thing I will, I usually drop in like as soon as I can in the conversation is like, I am not trained as a therapist. Like, please don't tell me your sexual problems. <laughs> I can only tell you research on like group averages and things like that. Um, but yeah, I do feel really lucky that I think it's something that everyone cares about. So I feel like at least when you know, I tell people about my research at parties. Hopefully I don't bore them um, too, too much. <laughs> Absolutely not. When I read, when I read the titles of your research, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. Oh my <laughs> gosh. So cool. I'm like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's one of those things too. I do feel very, very lucky that I'm able to, to research this topic. It's yeah. Some days I'm like, is this real life that I get to spend my days like thinking about these topics? So <laughs> mm. Is, is this field uh, a growing one? 
Yes. So I think, um, actually, yeah, on kind of all levels, um, my research areas are growing. So um, research into romantic relationships is getting more and more popular, as is research into sexuality. Um, but what I think is particularly cool is the fields of sexuality and relationship research emerging more and more. Um, so within the last 10 years, there's been a lot more researchers in this area and a lot more people recognizing the importance of both. So sort of historically, it was the case that there was sort of like the sex researchers and the relationship researchers and sort of like two separate camps, but more and more we're seeing people cross both those domains. And I think that's really important because I mean, anyone, as anyone knows, like sexuality is an important part of romantic relationships. And so it seems kind of silly that for so long they, they were kind of really separate. Um, so I think it's a really um, great thing that we're seeing more and more research sort of incorporating this, the relational aspects into sex research and then investigating sex if you're a relationship researcher. Um, and I think too, when we think of certain niche areas within the field, they tend to be growing. So for example, um, there's a subfield, I would call it a subfield, I guess, of people researching open relationships mm. or what's known as consensually non-monogamous relationships. I'm not sure if you guys have talked about those on the show before, mm. um, but that tends to be something that's sort of growing really exponentially more and more. We're seeing papers each year in the last few years coming out on that. So um, definitely overall, lots of growth into these areas. And um, I think that's really exciting. Yes, we did have an episode on polyamory. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Really fascinating. We had a, uh, she's a sex therapist from Portland. And I learned that Portland is one of the best places in the U.S. to be if you're in a polyamorous uh, or a consensual non-monogamous relationship. Um, it was, honestly, it's a really awesome episode. I'm just starting. Ah, yes. Episode 10, Unpacking <laughs> Polyamory with yeah. She is She's very well-spoken and uh, like, she sounds like she's a great therapist. <laughs> yeah. And I was going to say, like, I feel like that's, um, that's so encouraging to hear that you guys have an episode on that. Cause I think it is something um, that a lot of people are interested in. And I think there's a lot of myths about it. And um, it's one of the things I love to, to teach my classes is about some of the myths that we have about polyamory. So it's really great that like, you're able to probably dispel some of that and talk to someone who's a real expert in it. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Yeah. So Listeners, go go to episode ten. Just binge listen if you if you have the time. <laughs> um, I, something you mentioned before, and I think we'll get into, is like you talked about different attachment styles. Like yes, uh, and well, okay. Before we get to that, you've done a lot of research on satisfaction and long term relationships. Yeah. So what what are the factors that influence it? Mm, okay, yes, it's a sort of the, yeah, the key question really, and something that I think there's still, we're still learning more and more about this. Um, I guess I'll start with um, relationship satisfaction in particular, so sort of putting the sexual satisfaction aside for a moment. Um, one of the main predictors of relationship satisfaction and sort of longevity, I guess, is just how committed you are to the relationship and how much you really want it to work. So in relationships, we're really good at having all these motivated cognitive processes such that if you really want to make it work, you can, and that can make you feel more satisfied. So for example, if you're really committed um, to your partner, you start to see them in a more positive light. Like you see them as, um, you know, better than other people see them, which is a good thing, right? <laughs> or else none of us would be in long-term relationships. <laughs> um, so I think that's kind of one piece, like just being motivated can help you stay satisfied. Um, there's also um, sort of picking up on that piece with those like ideas that we have all these cognitive mechanisms um, that help us stay satisfied. One of those pieces is that we actually shift what matters to us in our relationship to help keep us satisfied. Um, so the most satisfied couples are really good at adapting to sort of their current situation. So an example might be that like, um, let's say I really value having an athletic partner, um, but all of a sudden, you know, maybe my partner gets injured or gets really busy at work and stops going to the gym. Um, if I'm really satisfied and committed, um, over time, I'll just start downplaying the importance of having an athletic partner. So I sort of come to meet where he is, <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, that's sort of a way to kind of a hack to stay satisfied is that some people are able to sort of just 
flexibly alter what matters to them um, to adapt to their current situation, which is cool. Mm, um, okay. so, so to summarize a little bit of that, there's the commitment factor, uh, yeah. a little bit of delusion about the grandeur Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, we could, you're exactly right. In the literature, they're called positive illusions, but I think delusion might be a little bit better. <laughs> yes. <Okay. yeah. laughs> shifting, shifting. Um, the goalposts, I guess. Yeah. Shifting the importance yeah. of different things, different qualities of your partner. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's kind of one big piece. Um, and then I, I feel like there's also then the second piece, which would be like conflict and communication. And that's really important for satisfaction over time. Um, and the main thing that I like to remind people is that if you look at the research, it's not just the case that conflict is bad. Because um, I think that's an easy thing to think, right? Fighting's bad. That's just like obvious. But it's actually not necessarily true. So um, there's certain conditions when... Um, conflict can be productive, and especially if you approach it in a certain way. Um, so for one example, um, my colleague here at Auckland has done a lot of research showing that like, if you want your partner to make a big change, like if you have a real big issue in your relationship, having some conflict can help because then your partner realizes like, oh, hey, okay, this is serious. I actually need to change. Um, whereas if you sort of downplay conflict all the time and are just like, uh, you know, I'm Canadian, I like to do humor or passive aggressiveness. <laughs> um, that's not so good long term. So I think it's sometimes a good reminder that um, obviously I'm not saying like scream at your partner and be really hateful or um, contemptuous or anything like that. But just like sometimes it's okay to, to have issues or to not agree on everything. And um, yeah, conflict does not always equal problems. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think it's something we've talked about a little bit on the show is like how to have healthy, healthy conflict. Oh, good. Yes. Yeah. And that always like gets into like the Dr. Phil stuff, like the I statements and like, oh, you know, yeah. you do this, I feel like this, but like you kind of have to do them. It's true. There's a lot of good research showing that how we fight fair is really important. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And actually that's again where I feel like uh, growing up, in Ontario, you know, I remember fully alive. These, these oh yeah, oh my god, blast <laughs> from the past. <laughs> yes, so fully alive, talking about healthy relationships and stuff. So I, I can't say that I was never taught anything about healthy relationships, but I wonder if we could have had a better focus on it. Exactly, and that's one thing that I think is a real key piece that I hope I'm not as familiar with if they've made a ton of changes to that aspect of the curriculum. Like I know I've been familiar with some of the great changes that like did happen, although I, I can't remember what's going on right now. I think they got repealed, but um, yeah, like I think that that's one of the reasons, like if I'm honest too, that's probably one of the reasons I'm really passionate about studying this area is that I feel like we could do such a better job of teaching people strategies for healthy relationships and then sexual relationships more broadly. So um, I went to Catholic school too, which adds that extra element of like <laughs> lack of education. Although I do remember fully alive and I remember everyone being like, turn to this page, which would be like the diagram page. Yes, yes, yes. The most exciting days of elementary school. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. There's like one kid whose face lit up and they're like, yes, 65, 65. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So true. I, 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 I'm happy to say I was not actually that kid. I didn't mean this interest yeah. much later. I wasn't, I good, promise. Good. <laughs> um, yeah, it, that's what makes me passionate about it too. And unfortunately, you know, you're, what, you, what you heard is true that uh, provincial uh, government yeah. like, rolled it back. So we're working with like 1998 and- Oh my God. Uh, there's been walkouts in Ottawa. Oh, right, right about that, yeah. And not not recently, but a few months ago. And uh, it's, it's so, so unfortunate because, because so many consultations went into the development of that more recent curriculum. Exactly. Yeah. And I like was so proud of it. Like I was like telling everybody, hey, look what my province did. Like it's so in line with so many of the great things that sex researchers are encouraging and positive sexuality. So it's so unfortunate that that is um, not happening. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And actually uh, that does dovetail with another question I had for you because 
You've traveled to many different places presenting your work. You've been to Tokyo. Oh, I actually didn't get to go there. That was my advisor, but (laughs) I wish, I wish. Okay. Well, I guess it's just, it's just, I think at the the heart of the issue is sometimes, you know, there's different perspectives and values Mm -hmm. and beliefs Mm -hmm. and fears about sexuality um, that have, there's so many, it's the intersectionality of culture. Yeah. Yeah. you know, like I was talking with an Uber driver the other day who is like, listen, like my kids will not have sex before they're married. And like, that's, that's that, you know, and I will meet the parents. And so he was telling me that his son is in, you know, in the midst of teenage hormone central, and he's like, really feeling a lot of like, sexual thoughts and talking to his dad about like dad I'm really I don't know what right, to do right. and he's like we're gonna try to get you engaged as soon as possible oh my god <laughs> yeah I think that's I mean it gets so tough right because it's like I on the one hand I understand different cultures have different beliefs and it's important to value different people's mm-hmm. beliefs and respect them but on the other hand I'm just like oh my gosh like that's a recipe for yeah like it's it's uh, one. I mean, a lot of research shows, right, that being positive about sexuality, hearing positive messages about sex from your parents, and not viewing sex as something that's shameful—that's so important for your long-term sex, uh, sexual satisfaction and your sexual health and um, relationship health. So it's it's unfortunate that like certain beliefs, right, put those two kind of in contrast, right? That you can't have those feelings or talk about sex until it's in the context of marriage. Um, yeah. And I think that like, hopefully there'll be ways. I like to always think that you can still learn about sex and still view it as something positive. Um, even if you are waiting till marriage or something like that, right? Like I'm sure you can still talk about how it's something that should be, you know, like talk about sexual relationships and teach about them, even if people are choosing to wait, right? Like I completely, that's totally fine. But um, I don't think necessarily getting someone like engaged right away is great, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and this connects with a question I had for you because you had this badass title for your, I think it was your PhD or I wasn't sure if it was your master's or your PhD, Great Expectations. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was my PhD thesis. Like, yeah. Oh yes, uh, she did. Yes. Yeah. And it's funny because I tried to get the actual published paper does not have that title because the editor was like, nah, <laughs> you don't need to have that. But in part, I stole that in part from Sex in the City, um, which like admittedly was um, low key and inspiration from, for some of my research. So I don't know if your listeners are too young to have like watched Sex in the City, but they haven't. So. Yes. So, I mean, I think that connects with our previous conversation, with, with our, our line of conversation earlier, which is what factors influence our expectations around sex? Ah, uh, yes, yes. So um, I guess to give the reader just like a little, or the listener, sorry, a little bit of a, an overview, um, my research on sex expectations specifically sort of contrasted two different beliefs about sex. So the belief that you're sort of destined to have good sex or you're not, or that good sex takes a lot of effort and work to maintain. Um, So those are called sexual destiny beliefs, that idea that it's, you know, destined, it'll be good or bad, or the sexual growth idea, which is more like, hey, it's like a garden, we can work to improve our sex life and really nurture it. Um, And I'm still investigating where those particular beliefs come from. So I haven't actually explored that question too much, um, with one exception, which is that I think they come from, a lot of it probably comes from media. Um, So even in one of my studies, I endorsed people to hold those beliefs just by having them read articles that said, hey, research shows that, um, you know, good sex takes work. And here's an anecdote from a couple that says sex takes work. And that was all fabricated for for my experiment, but it did help people hold those beliefs temporarily. Um, So that coupled with some other research that's been done on general relationship beliefs Um, points to this idea that sources like magazines, um, TV shows, movies, just the media in general can be responsible for some of our beliefs. Mm. Um, So if we think of like my particular research, I think things like romantic media, um, like watching The Bachelor, things like that (laughs) uh, might contribute a little bit to holding the idea that we have like a sexual soulmate or that things are destined or fate. 
Um, and there is some evidence of that, that people who tend to consume more romantic media tend to endorse more soulmate ideas. Mm. Um, and I don't think, you know, I mean, I think everyone can really resonate with those ideas. It's not hard to find examples in, in TV and pop culture of this idea that like sex should be great. And if you meet the right person, if you meet the one, everything will be awesome. Um, so, so I do sort of point the finger a little bit to the media in terms of shaping these beliefs. Um, but on the other hand, I'm sure things like our peers, um, and our family, um, shape our beliefs as well. So there's lots of, um, you know, research that's, that's not my own, just sort of on general sexual beliefs that show like, you know, family, religion, um, peers, general cultural factors can really, um, play into the sexual beliefs you hold. Hmm. Um, that. That makes a lot of sense because it's not something people talk about in daily conversation. Like it's very, first of all, if you're in a relationship, you're like, am I allowed to talk about my sex life with my friends mm -hmm, behind mm -hmm. my partner's back? You know, it's true. Am I like sharing a vulnerability that we don't want to share outside our little circle? you know? Yeah. 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 I don't want to embarrass, you know, you don't want to embarrass anybody. So it's, it's really, it's tricky. It's true. It is such like, I think you hit it on the head when you said like vulnerable, like sex is something that makes us feel really vulnerable. It's really intimate that you're right. Like talking about it sometimes does feel like you're sort of betraying your partner. And, and I think that's sort of why we have um, problems with just all these sexual myths. So I think um, one of the reasons I was passionate about my research is I think that people don't realize that it's really normal for sex to take work and effort and that it's normal for sexual satisfaction to go down over time um, and sexual desire to decline over time in relationships. So I think that if we were just better about like talking about these things, people would realize that it's it's really quite normal. Like oftentimes when I do hear people, even when I get the caveat that I'm not a therapist, I do hear people talk about their sex problems. Um, Oftentimes I'm just like, oh yeah, that's, that's quite normative. Like it's normal for satisfaction and frequency and desire to, to go down a bit um, when you're in a long-term relationship. And so I like to focus sort of on making them realize that that's like normal. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's a problem with their overall relationship. Um, and then I sort of try to give them some strategies to, to try to reboost some of that, that passion. But exactly what you're saying, like I think it's sort of unfortunately sex is still quite taboo especially in a lot of cultures and just everything so i think it helps perpetuate some myths like um some of my favorite research that was done at the university of toronto by amy muse um looked at just like how often couples have sex and how that is correlated with their overall life satisfaction and so she actually found that um having sex once a week was like the sweet spot for a lot of couples where that sort of maximized their personal well-being um, and I think that's something that like people probably have in their head that they need to be having all this sex all the time to keep it passionate and things like that. Um, when at the end of the day, like once a week on average is, is probably okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember reading somewhere that like Wednesday night is like a very common time of the week. I don't remember why. It's going to be like putting the hump in hump day. <laughs> I, fun, but <laughs> I don't know if I've heard... Cause I feel like I've also read that like the weekends are most popular, but I could also see Wednesday making sense. Yeah. <laughs> I had, I have two, two kind of branches that I'm thinking about now that we're talking about this, which is, so we talk about fixed and growth mindset in other contexts as well. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I work in like digital kind of learning and, and we talk about, uh. so, so, I wonder if there's a, a connection between people who have mm. with sex and they have it in their own life. That's a great question. Um, where you're a reviewer on one of my papers because um, <laughs> that's definitely something I'm really glad that you brought that up because I haven't mentioned that yet. And I always want to make sure I do mention that I co-opted exactly what you're saying. There's these general ideas of fixed and growth mindset that have been looked at in terms of a lot in terms of intelligence and learning and, um, Another researcher adopted them to the relationship domain, and then I piggybacked on that and adopted them to the sexual domain. Um, and a couple other researchers have done similar things as well, like a, applying the concept of fixed and growth to the sexual domain. So we, all of our research is like 
can be traced back to that, that general concept that is used a lot in learning. So it's like the same thing, it's just in the sexual domain. Um, and when I run um, like stats on this, it is true that people who generally think like intelligence or learning is fixed tend to think their relationships are more fixed and their sex life are more fixed. Um, but it's not a completely like huge correlation. So there are people who might just believe their sex life is fixed and believe in like natural sexual compatibility or sexual destiny, as I call it, but not believe like they might think, okay, well, yeah, my sex life compatibility, it's either there or not, or it's good or bad, but they might endorse more of a growth mindset when it comes to like people's personality or their intelligence or things like that. So it does tend to be true that you're for the most part, you have similar beliefs, but it's not a guarantee if that makes sense. Does, yeah. Does that make sense? Like, it's like, yeah, there's, there is definitely some moderate correlation between all of those beliefs, but um, each domain is different enough that they warrant sort of their own investigations. Yeah. Scale. Yep. Yeah. I get it. I'm seeing like sex yeah. is in its own cage. No, we yes. never want it to be in a cage. Yes. <laughs> Unless it's what oh, you're into. Wow. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, this second branch that I was thinking about is how this impacts, you know, how people feel about their relationships. So if I'm, if I have a mm. mindset and I'm in, you know, the seven year itch, or I'm thinking, okay, there's something that's wrong with my relationship. There's something broken. If there is a connection between this and does it lead to, um, cheating or divorce or separation? Right, right. So I don't have that, like, that good of data yet on that question, but what I will say is there's some suggestions that perhaps that's the case. Um, so some research on just general relationship destiny beliefs has shown that sort of what you're saying, like, they're more likely to be decisive and leave. So if you're a destiny believer in your relationship, you're not that keen on it you're more likely to have broken up at the next um, wave, so maybe a couple months later, than someone who does not hold those destiny beliefs. Um, so sort of being more willing to, to quit when the going gets tough. Mm. Um, and in terms of, I think, I loved that you said like the seven year itch, and if anything, research might suggest it's like even like two year itch or whatever, four year itch, but um, <laughs> Yeah, my research is suggesting that people who are high in sexual destiny beliefs and have some kind of sexual problems or are feeling less compatible, um, they feel less satisfied in their relationships. So they sort of let the sexual domain bleed over to their overall relationship evaluation. So when they're like, hey, bad sex, that must mean a relationship is screwed. Um, and so, I mean, I can't say for sure. I think relationships are such a critical part of our lives and especially like the sex part too that you just want some kind of confirmation that it that it's going well and you can't really get it you know from everyone and I think um where this comes out a lot too is people wanting to know like how often couples have sex what's normal and just really that fixation on what other people are doing so I think yeah like you're saying like it was like I gave them a sexual report card maybe <laughs> <laughs> um that you really can't get so I did yeah in retrospect kind of feel bad that that, that we did that but <laughs> it makes me laugh because I think about again uh, you talked about the media and I think about comedies where a couple goes to therapy and they're always trying to push the therapist to choose a side yes yeah it's so true well, what do so you true. what do you think about like what well, we just told you you know we're so vulnerable to you like <laughs> yeah like pick a side tell me what's right or wrong and yeah, yeah. and I think um especially with sex, it's hard. There is no right. Like there is no right or wrong. There's no normal. It's whatever everyone feels comfortable with. And so, yeah, exactly. You can't really get the therapist to pick a side. <laughs> exactly. To the listeners, it's just, there is no normal. Just do what you want to do as long as it's consensual. Exactly. So, I'm glad you said that. That was all I was going to add is like yeah. definitely as long as it's consensual. You know? Yes. So you mentioned speed dating and this is something that I find people are really curious about now is, you know, you, you'll meet someone who's single and then you're, you're in a relationship and they'll say like, how did you meet? And it's because they want to know how they can meet someone, how, how people are, who they're compatible with. So do you have any insight on the best way to meet someone we're compatible with? And 
Mm. Do you think that we should be seeking out people with a growth mindset, a sexual growth mindset? Ah, yes. That's a really great question. Um, I'll start with the second part first. I mean, obviously, yes, <laughs> sexual growth is good. And um, in some of my research, I've been able to show that like sexual growth beliefs can benefit your partner. So yes, if you can find someone with sexual growth beliefs, that would be amazing. Um, the other thing I'd say though to that is that if you really strongly hold sexual growth beliefs, you might be able to still benefit your sexual relationship, even if your partner doesn't quite hold those beliefs. Mm. Um, and I have some evidence that the beliefs can be shifted around. So hopefully you could sort of um, instill that sort of mindset in them. So I feel like, yeah, it would be ideal to find someone who has that. But if not, it's not, you know, you're not doomed or anything like that. You can always try to work them towards that, that more growth mindset. Um, yeah, where you, like how you can meet someone compatible um, is a really interesting question. And I'm going to sort of, I feel like I'm going to give a little bit of a cop-out answer, but just talk through a couple different thoughts that I have. Um, one is which I don't think we're good at knowing what we want in a partner and what compatibility would even look like. Um, so there is some evidence of that too, that we're not always great about predicting like who we're going to be attracted to and what's going to matter to us. Um, there's also some really interesting evidence um, from my colleague, Samantha Joel. She did studies where she I had people list all their relationship deal breakers. Like, you know, I would never date a smoker. I would never date um, a conservative, things like that. Um, and then she presented them with dating profiles that had those, some of those traits. I um, mean, she found that if the person was showing interest in you, you actually would be willing to go on a date with them or report that you would be willing to go on a date with them, even if they had some of those incompatibilities, like they, they were a smoker, even though you said that was a deal breaker. Um, and one of the things she shows is that it's just, it's hard sometimes to reject people when, you know, when they're, when they're putting out an offer. So, so sometimes we're not good at cutting off things, even if the person might seem incompatible. Um, so it's like compatibility is sort of a tough, a tough thing. Cause it's like, do we even know what compatibility looks like? Do we actually care about it? Um, but what I would say is I feel like, you know, I think that online dating really certain sites sort of spell this idea that like, Hey, we're going to find you a compatible partner. We're going to do all this fancy science to do that. Um, the caveat I would, I would like to tell your listeners is that like, most of those companies don't share their algorithms with relationship scientists. So I don't know how they are matching you um, and whether that's gonna predict relationship success and things like that. So you might think like, oh, you know, this, this I won't name specific sites, but like, oh, I, you know, this paid site seems really scientific. Like it, it actually might not be that scientific. So um, I think you need to go for your gut, right? Like just because, um, it says you're compatible doesn't mean you necessarily are. Um, this might be too much of a tangent, but one of my favorite things I read um, was that OkCupid for a while did an experiment. I don't think ethically, I don't think they had consent, but they um, ran, like they were randomly um, putting match levels on people's profiles. So like, let's say in, in actuality, I might be a 90% match with profile A, it might tell me we're only a 10% match. And what they found was that um, people are really powerful. Uh, people are really um, swayed by the power of suggestion. So we trust these sites. Like if it says a 10% match, I probably wasn't going to talk to that person, even though we actually would be really compatible. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my thinking there. I feel like there was something else I was going to add. Oh, I think it's sort of, um, sort of one of the things I would say your best chance of meeting someone who's compatible, whether you know, whatever that means to you, I guess, and what, what values you care about, like compatibility on politics or, you know, lifestyle or um, what have you. I think your best way of doing that is just being authentic. And um, you can do that no matter what medium you meet. I don't care if you're meeting on Tinder or Bumble or eHarmony, um, just being yourself and not, not hiding things, right? So the more you impression manage, the, it's harder to, to, to gauge your actual compatibility, right? So, so really, mom was right. Just be. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's much easier for me to say now that I'm in a happy relationship. But I feel like, yeah, when I was back in my online dating days, I might have had trouble being like feeling like you could be authentic all the time. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, I think that addresses my question about. I was going to ask about casual dating and speed dating. Ah, uh, yes, yeah. 
And I mean, I think that's the thing too, casual dating is sort of ever evolving. So um, it's kind of, I, I sort of laugh about it now, but I, I did a study looking at different types of casual sexual relationships. And I actually used definitions that were developed at the University of Ottawa on different types of casual relationships. But even now they sort of seem a little bit outdated. So like one of the terms was like booty call. And I was like, I don't know if anyone uses that anymore. And like, you know, we had friends with benefits and, and I don't know if I can swear, but fuck buddies or sex buddies. Um, yeah. So, so that was kind of interesting. Like I contrasted those, but, um, I, I sort of keep thinking like if I ever do another study, I think it's going to be so tricky to, I mean, even when I ask people now, what's your dating status? I'm like, I feel like I should just let them like, like, do they even know? It's like, there's so many gray areas, like what's casual dating, what's serious, what's hookups, what's friends with benefits and anyways so that's just an offside thing who even knows with casual dating it's yeah the labels are always changing um and things like that <laughs> yeah I think that's a really good point because you talk to people who've been married or in a long long relationship and then they try to things don't you know go south and they get back into the world of dating and they're like I don't even recognize this field yeah it's, I don't know yeah. <laughs> like gay men who actually I, I I know one gay man who came out after being married uh, and in a heterosexual marriage for a oh, long time. okay so his like coming out was as an older man in a oh, wow. that's dominated by young men yes are, yeah on grinder and all <laughs> of the yeah and that would be I can only imagine that would be quite a steep learning curve like like I even feel like being out of the game for maybe like two years. I, I still am like, okay, I try to stay cool and current and follow the memes about dating to get an idea of what's happening. But there's always new apps and new things and new trends and new new words actually too. I kind of find it hilarious. Um, and I don't always think it's needed, but like every time I I keep hearing all these new words on Twitter that people are calling relationships different things or like, okay, you're, you're um, breadcrumbing someone or you're simmering or you're like, there, I, I, there's so many words I don't even know, but they all sort of speak to this like gray area of relationships. Yeah. yeah. I remember hearing catch feels. You don't want to catch feels. Yes. For yes. Right? yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, what I'm, I'm curious about again, you're so, so knowledgeable about this area. So I, I'm interested in what, what concerns you about what you've learned? Mm. Ah, that's a great, uh, yeah. So one of the main things I'd say, it's not necessarily something I've found in like my own research, but just generally in the field. Um, I still am concerned with there still being a sexual double standard and still all the stigma around women's sexuality. Um, so for like, a couple things come to mind with that, like still just like the orgasm gap and how, you know, we're still really focused in heterosexual relationships on males pleasure. Um, it's been a while since this has been done, but like for a while people were doing content analyses of like Cosmo and like media sources on sexuality and showing they were very, very focused on male pleasure. And I, I think from reading some of them myself that, that, that that's slowly changing, but I do think, we still in general have a bit of a focus on, on, you know, sex being okay for males, casual sex being okay for males, but not as much females. Um, you know, the, the male, and I think we still have those um, stereotypical beliefs that like men should always want sex. Men should always initiate sex. Um, and not really realizing that, for example, men do experience low desire. There's tons of men who are the lower desire partner in their relationship. Um, and just sort of, yeah, I guess I'm just still sad about how many harmful gender stereotypes we still have around sexuality. Um, yeah, and some really cool research that I like uh, that shows this is really kind of centering on this idea that it's all about social norms. So they've done some cool studies. Uh, this was done by Terry Fisher. Um, and I, I love to teach my class about this because I was like, I remember learning about this and being like, oh yeah, I want to be a sex researcher. So what they do is they um, convince, it's, it's an experiment, so certain groups get assigned to this condition, but others are controls. They convince um, them that they're hooked up to a lie detector. They are really, in actuality, not hooked up to a lie detector. So we have men and women believing that they're hooked up to a lie detector, that they need to be honest, 
um, and they ask men and women things like, you know, did you watch porn this week? Um, how often did you masturbate? What's your sexual desire? And things like that. And what you see there is that men and women show less differences in those conditions and women are, um, you know, showing much more open sexual behaviors and being a lot more sex sexual, if you will, in that lie detector condition. Um, so what that suggests is that when they are just answering questions, um, they feel that they can't um, honestly answer certain questions and they feel like, no, no, women are not supposed to masturbate or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so I just think that's really interesting that that's still like, you know, some of that was older, like 2003 maybe, but that's been replicated in like 2013, I think. So um, we still have these, these cases where women feel like they can't be as open about their sexuality. Um, and I think that's obviously unfortunate, although I do think that we should be happy because there's been a lot of strides recently. You know, you do see things like women feeling more comfortable talking about watching porn or using sex toys and things like that. Um, so hopefully over time things will change. Um, but I think it's still slow and, and still like, Oh, like, yeah, still all the male's pleasure. Yeah. Ugh. And yeah. And I, I, the orgasm gap, I remember reading, well, I, I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about what that is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And I was going to say, I'm definitely not an expert on that in particular, but what I, the, the, the sort of the gist of it is that. Um, I mean, it's very, very common for women not to orgasm during sex, um, especially if we're looking at something like first time sexual encounters with a partner. Um, and part of that can just be linked to this idea that when people think about sex, they're thinking about um, like heterosexual penetrative intercourse, um, you know, penis and a vagina, if that's not too explicit. <laughs> um, but that's true. And that's actually not what is going to help women achieve orgasm and sexual satisfaction, right? So I think a lot of people now are more aware that it's more about the clitoris and that's more important. Um, and I think though, it's still taking a while for men to catch up on this, that like for females pleasure, the activities that you think about for sex aren't necessarily what's going to be good for her. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I, uh, I, I remember reading that when I was studying to be a sexual health educator that there's this this gap in in orgasms and and even like uh, the amount of times women are are like performing fellatio versus like how oh, often yes. going down on them and it's like yes you know and even anecdotally you talk to people and they're like oh no like no he doesn't he doesn't do that and I'm like okay. <laughs> but yeah, you're still expected. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't seem as reciprocal. Yeah. yeah. And it makes me, yeah. it makes me feel bad. Um, because I think otherwise these people are seem happy in their relationship and they may not even mm -hmm. realize that there's a, a disparity. Right. Right. And I mean, that's kind of an interesting point too. Cause I think that reminds me of something I did want to mention too, that like it, goes back to to my point a little bit about like what you believe is important and so I feel like there are people and uh, my colleague uh, Lindsay Hicks at FSU did some research on this showing like if you believe oral sex is important then the amount of oral sex you have does really matter for your relationship satisfaction um, but if you're someone who's like nah oral sex doesn't matter then you're okay if you're not having it but I feel bad for the people who like you're mentioning maybe do actually want it, but aren't getting it. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's okay if you're not into it, but if you care about it, then it's actually going to impact your relationship satisfaction. Mm -hmm. So it's something to be mindful of. Right. Um, yeah. And, and I find that that's where psychology, uh, psychology is so fascinating because it's where we're creating barriers in our own minds about yeah. what's okay. Um, yes. Yeah. The bedroom. And it's like very, it's interesting because like, I just, I just don't know if people take the time to actually reflect on mm -hmm. what they actually like. Well, it's true. It's true. It's like, do you know what you like? And, and, or if you have certain beliefs about what you do and don't like, is that coming from a certain place? Is that just cultural stereotypes you're implying or um, have you actually explored things? And yeah, I think one of the things I do tell um, like my class um, is that I think one good way to do things like that as well as um, there's like some websites that I can give you some examples. I think one of them is called Mojo, um, where both partners can 
sort of independently complete a survey saying like it lists all these different sexual behaviors, like sort of everything under the sun. And you say either, you know, green light, yellow light or red light being like, yeah, I might be into, I'm either totally into this, maybe into this or like, heck no. Um, and at the end, what it does is it sends a list of just the ones that you, you and your partner say that you like are either definitely into or like could be into trying. Um, and I think that's really cool because it sort of, um, might expose you to a different set of beliefs than you thought about. And it might help you realize like, okay, maybe deep down you were hoping your partner would do, um, you know, X behavior. Um, but you were like afraid to ask, but now you have a sort of confirmation that he said he'd be into that. So maybe now you can communicate about it a little bit more. So, I mean, I think it's obviously not the, not the best, like it's not the optimal way to sexually communicate doing like a survey, but I think that it can maybe spark a conversation between your partner and you about different behaviors to try. Cause I think there's a lot of people who don't know what they like just because they haven't tried them or are too afraid to, to bring it up to their partner. Mm, oh, that's cool. I definitely would like to link to that in the show. Yes. Yeah. I'll definitely like pull up the exact website and I do know there's like a couple different ones. Um, yeah. So yeah. I, will, I will find that for you. Yeah. And I'll, I'll provide maybe some links to the other, other researchers, other research that you've uh, spoken about. Oh yeah. That'd be great. And most of them too, I can also send you like, I think a lot of blog posts, like, you know, there's also like, um, they usually have like plus press releases that are also more like friendly. So you don't have to read the boring parts. <laughs> nice. Yes. Yes. For us. Yeah. People. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, what, uh, so what's next, you know, what remains a mystery to you and what's the next research frontier? Oh my gosh. Yeah. So much still remains a mystery. And I think that's kind of an exciting thing. Um, one of the big areas I'm only going to touch a little bit probably, but, um, that sort of still constantly influxes like, um, the effects of pornography on relationships. Um, still a lot to learn there. Um, but personally, kind of one of the main things I'm pursuing is this idea that um, I talked a little bit about how we're good at having cognitive distortions in our relationships. Like, you know, we care so much about our partners. We're like, we can make ourselves trick our, our mind. Our mind, our mind can do a lot of gymnastics um, to make us feel satisfied. So I want to look at um, sexual satisfaction at more of a gut implicit level. So instead of just asking people, how happy are you in your sex life? Um, which then they're self-reporting. They're probably like, well, shit, I feel like I better say we're happy because you know, we've been married or whatever. Um, I'm trying to get something like more, uh, more of like, a yeah, automatic response. So, um, this is based on some other research that's been done in the relationship domain on what's called implicit partner attitudes. So sort of beyond your conscious awareness, perhaps just sort of your automatic thoughts about your partner. I'm trying to adopt that in the sexual domain to look at people's automatic thoughts about their sexual partner. Um, and if people are familiar with like the IAT, the implicit association task, it's going to be similar to that idea. Um, so in our case, what's going to happen is like, you know, you're going to, um, be primed with the idea of your partner and see how quickly you can identify positive and negative words afterwards with the idea that if your partner um, is truly activating positive thoughts, you're going to be quicker to recognize those positive things. So I'm trying to do this with sex to see if we activate the concept of sex with your partner, are you going to be able to, to identify positive concepts readily? Um, and that would then suggest that perhaps you have hold these positive beliefs, truly hold positive beliefs about your sex life. And it's not something that's going on higher order that you're just maybe thinking you should say you're sexually satisfied. Oh, that's, that, that makes sense. Yeah. It's very much in the pilot stages. Got to launch my first study on it, but um, I'm excited to see what's going to happen with that. Have you done any research on social media impacts on relationships or uh, jealousy and impacts on, on uh, yeah, no, so I haven't. Um, I can send you some links of people who have done some good work on social media and also jealousy and how those play in. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely an, an, um, an area that's sort of ripe for future research and more and more people are starting to explore that. Um, I think the trick with social media is I feel like it's such a moving target, right? Like, and that goes back to what, what we were saying that we feel like maybe I, well, I was saying sort of, I feel old sometimes like out of the loop. So like, at this point, I wouldn't even think doing research on Facebook for young people is like a thing. Like they're not on Facebook. They're, they're not even on Instagram. Like I thought I was cool, but like, you know, they're on TikTok and Snapchat. So like, there's so many 
layers. Um, so I think what's um, important when designing studies on social media and jealousy is looking at the general processes and not focusing, not overly focusing on the medium that you're looking at, because I think those are shifting so much, but I bet all the underlying things are still the same, right? And sometimes I find that with some of the research that comes out on social media is that like, um, at the end of the day, the processes we're talking about are the same as the ones that researchers were looking at in the 80s and 90s, but just in different ways, right? Like the people who are jealous at a bar um, are the one, you know, or jealous of their partner's coworkers or the same ones who are jealous of their partner's social media activity. Like I feel like at a certain point, like it's really cool to do social media research and there's reasons sometimes to think things would be different, but um, sometimes it's like worth taking a step back and thinking through like, okay, do we actually think something different's gonna happen online than what happens in real life? But, well, fair, good yeah. point. That's a good point. So it sounds sexy, but it might- Yeah, it's not always, I mean, I, I'm still a sucker. I love all that research, but that's sort of why, like I always try to, at least for myself or when I have students who want to do those topics, I'm like, okay, well, we'll really have to unpack why we think it's going to be a different process going on. Yeah. Yes. I want to touch a little bit about uh, your extensive CV. Uh, it's seven pages long for those of you. Oh man, that's probably just the font. <laughs> you have, you've done, a, you have done a lot of work and you've done work as surprising graduate students. You've had, You've mentored people. You're um, you're doing. You're an assistant professor right now, and you are. Um, so it. I think me thinks that you're pretty productive, and I'm <laughs> interested in productivity hacks and kind of oh how you. What's the method? What's the method behind the madness that makes this right? Right. Well, it's kind of funny too because I was gonna say I never feel like I'm productive enough, and also um, I'm also a sucker for productivity hacks. So we should like trade notes because I'm always into like reading new books on productivity and finding more ways to be efficient. Um, but I can honestly say one of the reasons I've been able to do as much as I have is I've had amazing colleagues. Um, mainly at the, like, well, everywhere I've got to work so far. So starting at the University of Toronto, um, there was a really good crew. It's really a hub of research on relationships and on sexuality. Um, and even through um, sort of connections within the Canadian community, there's like a great conference each year called the Canadian Sex Research Forum. Mm -hmm. um, it's an organization known as CSRF for short. And um, through that yearly conference, I've met some great collaborators. Um, and so one of the ways I'm able to stay so um, productive, even though I want to <laughs> the able, reason I'm able to, to do as much work as I do is because I do collaborate with a lot of people um, with a lot of different expertise. And I think that boils down to the idea that like, I'm fascinated by so many aspects of relationships and sexuality. I can't always get data on everything or be like completely an expert in both. So I like to work with students who can help me out and, and also just share knowledge with different collaborators. Um, in different areas too. Um, and so like, I'm really excited to continue working with um, some clinical sexual researchers I, I collaborate with because they have great data and great insights into, you know, like women who are experiencing really low sexual desire. Um, and I think doing things like that just helps expose me to different ideas, keeps things fresh. Um, and yeah, it's just kind of exciting. So yeah, I think my, right now my productivity hack is just, I'm a social person and so I just collaborate with people. Um, but yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Jessica, this has been an uplifting and informative interview. Thank you so much for your Thank time. Thank you so much.